Thank you, Andy. Uh, good morning. Uh, I want to ask you guys a question right off the bat. Who is the person that you know the most? Maybe it's someone sitting right next to you. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a good family friend. Maybe it's siblings. Maybe it's a coworker. I want you to just try to think for just a second who that is. And if I asked you a question, how well, what could you tell me about that person? Assume I don't know them at all. I've never met them before. What could you tell me about them? Well, if you asked me that question, uh, my answer would be my, my wife, Karen. Uh, I've known her for 23 years, and, and I can tell you some facts about her. Uh, I can tell you where she was born. Uh, I can tell you where she grew up, where she went to school. I can tell you different jobs. She's had a lot of facts about her, including what's going on in her life right now. Uh, her job, the, the struggles and the triumphs that she sees every day. Uh, I can tell you a lot about her. But through our process of our relationship, I've also noticed some things about her that I would consider her characteristics, her character. Things like she has a kind and compassionate heart, for, especially for others, uh, a self, selfless person. She is a, has a humble heart and usually deflects attention. Anything that's given to her usually deflects to someone else. She is tough. And a strong worker with a very strong work ethic, which I highly admire. And she can organize and plan as well as anyone else I've ever known. See, it's not just about the facts of knowing her, but I truly did know her. So my question for us today that I want to spend some time on today is, if that's how much we know the person that's close to us in our life, how much do we know about God? How much do we know about God? Please stand with me, as our tradition is here at New City, to stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage today is from the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Today's topic is fueling worship. Uh, Pastor Aaron, in the last several weeks in our, in our study, has been talking and using the word worship a lot. And I, I don't want to deviate that from the day, but maybe come at it from a little bit different angle. So the, so the two uh, basic points that I'm going I'm to talk about today is knowing the God that we worship, and what are the results of knowing this God? So let's dive right in. Who is this God that we worship? And hey, John, does it really matter? who this God is that we worship. I mean, come on, I, maybe I grew up in, you grew up in Sunday school class. Maybe you've been attending church for a while. Maybe you had some Bible says, John, I know that. I mean, don't, don't I need to get on to the more important things of the Christian life? I mean, I already know who God is. Well, let me just let Scripture interpret for us where this really is going. Jesus said in John 17, now John 17 is the chapter of what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus praying to God right before he was arrested and crucified. And here's what he said in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it looks like this is a pretty important thing. The Son of God himself says, if this is eternal life, blank, that they would know you. That they would know the one true God, the eternal life through Jesus Christ. How do we get to heaven? What do we need to do? In a sentence, in a phrase, I think he says it right there, to know the one true God. Uh, 
Uh, Andy said we, we want to follow some guys who, who maybe went before us, maybe passed away. Well, A.W. Tozer is one of them. He's one of my favorite authors. He has a quote that is, is pretty powerful. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What is the most important thing about you? About the most important thing, and I think he makes a great case here. The most important thing about us is what we think about God. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And we can see this in others, but let's look at ourselves in the mirror for a second here. How many times have we had a twisted view of God who is? Not God as he's revealed himself through scripture, but maybe we've invented some type of Santa Claus God or the magic genie bottle that I rub when I need something, the ATM machine, right? Do we really know who that true, the one true God is? So, so, so uh, unpacking this, in our verses today, well, want, the first point I want to make here is there is an able one, that's God himself. The whole point, really, of this whole, whole two verses is he's able. It's, it's, this isn't a man-centered verse here. This is a God-centered verse. The able one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, that's, that's good news for us here today because we know that life is about a lot of stumbling, right? Trying to live our lives as a Christian and follow Christ entails a lot of potholes and a lot of stumbling blocks too. But think about that. The creator, the sustainer, the judge, the defender, the Lord of the universe right now is a living God and he is here with us alongside of us. See, the context of the book of Jude is he was warning the people, the the early Christians at the time, to contend for the faith in light of all the twisted teachings and the false teachings that were around them at the time, to contend for the faith. And he's giving them encouragement in this regard. He is able. God is with you, and he will keep you and is able to keep you from stumbling. We even see this throughout other parts of Scripture, don't we? King David himself, we know in the famous Psalm 23, he says in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. See, this isn't some, some deistic being that's far and distant from us. No, this is God with us and amongst us. God has never also pr- promised, we, we also realize this, whether we believe it or not, we know this from our experience, don't we? That life is about a bunch of trials and stumbling blocks too. He, and God, by the way, never promises us that put your faith in me and I will smooth the road out and it gets just, it's a piece of cake. That's not it. But we also have a hope along with that. John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in you, you may have, in me, you may have peace. But in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome it. The one who has overcome it is with us and for us and traveling alongside us. See, he knew us before the beginning of time. He knows us now, and he's going to know us for eternity. And that should be a source of great hope and comfort and strength for us, too. And let's, Christians, let's just celebrate here today that our God, as opposed to maybe some other religions' God, is a living God. See, the the deists believe that, yes, there's a creator, there's a higher being of some sort, and he or she or it created things like a good watchmaker and maybe wound it up and set it and just went on vacation and isn't involved in the day-to-day happenings. That's not the God of the Bible. He is living and active, and he's with us, and that is good, good news. Second point, the able one who is able to present us blameless. Uh, I had a chance to lead a Bible study with uh, 
uh, with some men a few years ago. Uh, one guy who was really just growing in his faith, and he was just faithful to come, but he had a he really wasn't founded really biblically, especially in his faith. He had a Catholic, little bit of a Catholic background. And one, one day, I'll never forget it, we're sharing, we're going through the, the son, uh, prodigal son uh, parable. And we were especially zeroing in on how unbelievable the love of the father was to run after that prodigal and hug him and kiss him before he could even get words out of his mouth and repent. And how amazing that really is with what the prodigal had done and rebelled and spit in the face of the father, yet he still ran after him. And we turned to that coach, and he said, what do you think about that? And he turned to me and looked with me with this serious look on his face, and he says, that's insane. <laughs> and I loved it because it was raw. It was from his heart. It didn't have the- theological uh, seminary kind of words. He spoke it from his heart. That's insane. I said, boy, that is absolutely beautiful. That's exactly right. The love of God he has given us through Christ, in, in a sense, in our own vernacular, it's insane. We, we can't fully comprehend it, why he would do that, but that's exactly what he has done. He is going to present us blameless. Now, think about this. this is, we're going to have, we're going to have, I had to wrestle with this. I think we all do as we get serious with our faith. How is that possible? How is that possible that he's going to present us blameless, spot-free on that day of reckoning? How is that going to happen? See, now, other religions would basic, basically agree with us in, in these two basic points. That, that, that we do have a higher being, and he is beyond us. That's why he's God. He's, right? he's not like us. He's maybe the creator. He's this higher force, right? We all have that in similarity. And I think most people, even of other religions, also agree that there's something wrong with us. That I know the things I should do, but I don't always do them. And those things that I shouldn't do, gosh, I find myself continuing to, and just mankind in general and our world in general, there's something broken and wrong. I think they would agree with us on that too. And, but usually that's, this is where the Christianity and most religions deviate is because usually the solution comes in this kind of package. It's like, okay, yes, we're separated from this higher being. And what you need to do are the 10 steps that you need to clean yourself up and you'll be made right to that God. But that's not the word. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the gospel that we believe in, is it? Now, before we get into that, let's think about this. And besides looking at other religions and maybe looking at other people, let's look inwardly at ourselves and just ask ourselves honestly, have we ever found ourselves in that kind of mindset? Maybe not you, the pattern of your life is that mindset that you're living to try to earn God's favor and be right with God because you behave well. But maybe you found yourself at a moment in that kind of mindset and thinking. In the book of Galatians, Paul, Paul was addressing this directly to the churches in that Galatian area who had absorbed, these early Jews especially, had have accepted Jesus Christ as the one true God, the Messiah, the one to put their faith in. But the problem is they were always saying, well, yeah, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you also need to add circumcision. You need to add these rites, these rituals. It's Jesus plus something. And Jesus, or excuse me, God through Paul in Galatians 2 hits this right square in its face. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Think about that. Think about that. 
from centuries ago, even the Jews believed there was a promised Messiah. We knew that from early, early on, right? And through the line of David and all those promises that that Jesus was coming, the Messiah. And here he was and purchased and died for us. And when we, and and then at the, the, at the end of the end of his crucifixion, the very last words that Jesus said were, it is finished. He has completed the work of saving us, making us right with God, not done on a one iota of our own works, nothing of our own merit. It's finished completely. When we try to add to that, it's as if saying, Jesus, it wasn't enough. It isn't finished. And what Paul's saying, go one step further. It's as if he died for nothing. Ouch. I have to admit, there are times when I, I catch myself, I'm really trying to add to that, that I am completely loved and a child of God by nothing I've done, by everything that Jesus has done. And we know what the true gospel is. Jesus said this uh, to his disciples in Luke 9. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a gift, pure and simple. There are no prerequisites. Believe and receive what God has for us. So getting back to this this seeming contradiction of how can a sinful person be be right with God? Because he sums it up in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So maybe we get that on an ethereal kind of note. John, in theory, I kind of understand that. But the the Son of God, he did die. He did rise. Oops, sorry. And I put my faith, and that's made me right. I get that. But here's the problem. The rest of my life. Because this morning, on the way to church, this afternoon, if I'm really honest, if you had to bet on it, Bet on me sinning this week. I still go on sinning even though I'm made right with God through Jesus Christ. So how can this be? We've got to wrestle with that. God isn't blind, is he? (laughs) He doesn't turn a blind eye on us. That's not what the gospel says, is it? That, yeah, he knows your sin. I mean, he knows everything, and he knows even the intentions of our heart, right? Does he turn a blind eye on that? Well, that's not the God of the Bible either. He is the judge, and he's a good judge. Good judges see things that the, the guilty and punish them appropriately. That's who we, we should be under. How can we explain this? Well, throughout centuries, we're not, this isn't a new thought. Throughout centuries, theologians uh, have had to wrestle with this. Some have called this the great exchange. It's probably the best way to put it, I think, too. It's a distinctive of our Christian faith that our king, our God, went ahead and died on our behalf. If you want to use a fancy term, substitutionary atonement. It's the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? In his writings, the 16th century uh, reformer, Martin Luther, coined the phrase, Simul Justus el Peccator. And I'm really impressed you with my Latin there, but I had to look it up. And what it means is simultaneously justified to God and yet still sinful. The amazing thing is that is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That, that positionally, I am made right with God, even though functionally today, I'm probably going to still go and, and, and sin in my own ways too. We are made right with God by God. That's insane. But that is the truth. And those are the facts of being a Christian. We are right now more sinful than we ever wanted to admit. But at the same time, 
more love than we could ever imagine. In a few minutes, we're going to sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. One of the, one of the verses says, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. The results of knowing this, God. Now, those are just two little aspects to hopefully kind of uh, whet our appetite with, wow, do I really know God in those, those phases? That he is able to keep me from stumbling and he's going to present me blameless. What's the result of knowing that, God? These two verses that I've picked out today are called a doxology. That comes from the Greek word doxa, meaning glory, to exercise personal opinion, which determines value. And logos, which is words or saying. So basically, a saying of God's glory. And if you haven't noticed here, that's a tradition we have here at New City Church. The very final song we sing every week is, a, is called the doxology, or it's a doxology, a saying about God's glory. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. It's important that we recite that and remember that. And that's really what worship is, isn't it? Assigning worth and value. Someone once taught me that worship is really worthy ship. It's assigning, assigning value and saying, I'm going to worship that because I'm thinking it's, it is worthy of, of all my praise and my focus too. So, you know, reflecting on what is God, it fuels our worship for him. And the result of our pursuit of God and remembrance of what he's done, it's assigning glory and worship to him in all of our areas of life. Perhaps more than any other aspect of our faith, worship will really separate the authentic believer from the lukewarm. There's a grave difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And remember what John 17, 3 said. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they would know you. Didn't say know about you. Let me illustrate this by uh, comparing a term paper to a dating relationship. Uh, Give me some latitude on this. And a term paper... You know the assignment, you know your topic, you know the number of pages and the format you have to write it in. And you go out and research and research, and you cite references, right? And you come up with all the facts, and you present that in order to get a good grade. And the, the, the means to the end is really just getting a good grade and getting all the facts. But in a dating relationship, it's a completely different thing. I can re- recall back when I was dating Karen, too. Yeah, I wanted to find some facts about her. Because I was very intrigued by this woman and pursued this one. But it wasn't just for the end goal of just finding out facts about her so I could become more knowledgeable about Karen. Because I wanted to know her more. Because I wanted to know her more. And that's a great, I think that's a, that's a parallel to really our pursuit of God too. There's a pattern throughout the whole Bible in this doxology, this praise of God. Psalm 73 is one of my favorites. Verses 25 to 26 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but the Lord is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. And then in the New Testament, probably my favorite book of the Bible is probably the book of Romans. And for about 11 chapters, Paul goes into some of the deepest theology of the fallen state of man, the redemptive work of Christ through 11 chapters And it's as if he has studied that to about the deepest degree he could and penned it on paper. And at the end of that, he comes and just reflects on it. And it's his doxology. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I can almost see the aha kind of facial expression on Paul why he must have been penning these words. See, he had been reflecting on what God has done, who he is, and soaking in that, not just because there were a bunch of facts, because they were permeating into his soul, that that is who his Savior is. And that produced a heart of worship in him. See, worship doesn't merely express our emotions. It shapes the emotions of our heart. Worship's not an emotionally driven experience, but it often results in our emotions, isn't it? I thought Pastor Aaron did a great job. He brought up the train analogy, right? Our faith and faith are, what's, faith are what's driving the train, and our emotions are on the train, but they're the caboose. They come along for the ride, but they're not driving it too. Sometimes I have had a warped idea of really what worship is, that it has to be always this euphoric emotional experience, and oftentimes it is, but really it's driven by the facts and the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. There will be times when the joy of worship isn't there for us. Let's just be honest about that, too. I mean, we could sometimes be here at church and smile and, hey, how are things going? Oh, they're good, great. And maybe they are, maybe they're not. But we also know that during our, our walk, during every week, there are moments when we just don't feel very happy and don't very joyful in the Lord. And by the way, we're not alone. King David himself in Psalm 51 said this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, think about it this way. Deeply loving someone almost always involves choice and not a feeling. We may not feel like loving someone, but we can display great love for them in spite of our feelings. Anyone can love when we're emotionally charged, but when the greatest show of love, the greatest show of love is when we even don't feel like it. In fact, the greater the sacrifice in choosing to love someone, the greater the love. Little given, little loved, much given, much loved. Worship is exactly that same way too. I want to give you two reasons why it's helpful for us to build a pattern of worship in our lives. First one, mankind struggle, all of us, from history to today. You remember the movie recently, Edge of Tomorrow? Live, die, repeat, right? I think the movie that would explain human history, redemptive history with God, it should, it should be the edge of eternity. God saves, man forgets, repeat. Right? That from history, from the Garden of Eden, from the fall to today, that really has been our history, hasn't it? God saves us and redeemed us because we, we have run our own way. We may celebrate for a short period of time and may even turn our hearts and repent and worship in truly with a whole heart and with a joyous heart, but it doesn't take very long, sometimes a very short amount of time, before we go back and we forget that. Throughout the Bible's history, God continually says, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. If we're honest, we're forgetful people. Not just about maybe an anniversary or someone's birthday, but we forget the greatest show of love that's ever been given us, too. So, to help us cultivate a lifestyle of worship, we need to be disciplined in our worship. And that sounds almost hard for me to say. Discipline my worship? Gosh, that sounds like legalism, John. But I found that to be the case in my life, and I do think that's our, our pattern here, isn't it? Sometimes our greatest worship of God comes when we least feel like it. 
Uh, I work in sports ministry for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, so I got I Sorry, I'm going to give you another football analogy here, too. I thought you... A week off from Pastor Aaron, you're going to get another football analogy. Sorry. Sorry. It's not youth football, though, okay? So if I go down the street and visit a local high school football coach, and here we are, we got, you know, high school football is a 10-game season, and I visit one, one school. is 9-0. and They're already clinched the playoffs. They're, they're already making plans to finish out this week's game, and here's the playoffs. are. we got a shot at going all the way. So I, I show up on Monday morning to their morning lifting at 6 a.m., and the guys are getting after it. Plates are going up. They're encouraging each other. I mean, they're getting after it. That's impressive. There aren't many, there aren't many programs that get after it like that. I'm impressed. Well, I asked one of the players, what's going on with that? He's like, well, you should, you should meet our coach. I mean, we just love him so much, and we run through a wall for that guy. I'm like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty impressive. But then again, I mean, you guys are 9-0, and you have a lot to gain here by maybe being state champs here. That's pretty impressive. Because the next day I go down the street to the next high school, their rival, who's on just the other end of the spectrum. And they're 0-9. They've already been mathematically eliminated from playoffs. Their season ends this week with Saturday's game. And I show up to their Tuesday morning workouts, and at 6 a.m., every one of their guys is in there. And I think they might be going harder than that first team, at least as hard. And they are encouraging one another, and they are pump awake like they're, they're putting up max weights like they never have the whole season. I'm like, what is going on here? I looked it up. This isn't a mistake. You're 0-9. You have won this season. I, I talked to one of their players, and I said, what's going on? He's like, you should meet our coach. I said, I want to meet this coach because this is, this is motivation like I've never seen before. If I could bottle this and sell this to coaches, I'd be a zillionaire, right? How much more impressive is it when they really had nothing to gain? They were still giving everything they had, even though they had nothing to gain at 0-9. Now, that's glorious when you're 9-0 and giving glory to your coach. That's, that's pretty cool. But even more so when you're 0-9. I think the same thing is for us, too. Yeah, when we have that mountaintop experience, when we're feeling prosperity and relationships are going well in our life, when, we're, when we have good health and everything is just, it just lined up well, yeah, praise God. And we should. But boy, how hard is it when things are, are hitting rock bottom? And yet we still say, praise God. That is true worship. That's been my experience with, 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 uh, with worship. Second reason to a pattern of worship in our lives, our distracted attention. I looked this up. The Earth's sun is 400 times larger than the moon. Now, there's some scientists in there, so please give me some grace here, right? Uh, scientists estimate that you could fit 64.3 million moons inside the sun. It's that much bigger than the moon, Okay. The sun's not only massively bigger than the moon, but it's also to provide light and warmth and just enough gravitational pull to keep us in orbit to sustain life on Earth. And the moon could do none of that. Yet about every 18 months, there is a solar eclipse when the the moon moves in front of the sun and blocks out the sun. And isn't that a great description of our worship problem? It's not that the moon isn't big, I looked at, I think there's about 14,000 uh, square, square miles of surface area on the moon. It's a big rock. So it's not that the, the, the moon isn't big, but gosh, it pales in comparison to the sun. And the only thing it can do is reflect light off the sun. It has no inerrant, inerrant uh, ability to, to provide anything for us, too. But isn't that what happens when we allow our problems in our life? Maybe even our successes in our life. 
the moons in our life to eclipse the sun? I mean, it's just foolish. It's just foolish. The other reason for us to have regular worship pattern in our life, it gives us perspective. And don't we need that often? Because the world we're going to go out in today, we're going to get in our cars, we're going to go back into our world today, and our world gives us a different perspective. That this is the here and now, and this is all it's about. We have to understand that, listen, for those who are in Christ, this is not home. We're aliens, strangers. What's to come is going to be glorious. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our God, the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless, he's made us alive in Christ, both now and for eternity. And that's something we should celebrate and something we should worship. As we move into our time of celebrating communion, our, our, the Lord's Supper today, uh, let me just read from you uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that, that sums up really what we're about. And this ties directly in to our message today on worship. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, when we celebrate communion, we're remembering what God has done for us. That great exchange that we talked about. It's only possible through the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, completely sacrificing his body and his blood that we may be completely forgiven and blameless in front of him. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, if I can, if I can just say this uh, in my own vernacular, Lord, this is insane what you have done. God, Seeing us in our sin, you in your perfection, yet you chose while we were still sinful to die for us. How awesome that is. God, I thank you for that today. And as we go about to the communion today, I just pray that you would be honored as we remember you. God, please help us in our lives that we would even be disciplined, not, not legalistically like we're earning more from you, but God, because we want to be worshipers of you. Help us to discipline ourselves, that we would see you for who you truly are. The one who's with us could keep us from stumbling and the one who is presenting us blameless. So God, be honored and glorified through our, through our honoring of you and remembering what you have done. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.